The Holes Around Mars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by George Thomas. The Holes Around Mars by Jerome Bixby. Science said it could not be, but there it was. And whoosh, look out, here it is again. Spaceship crews should be selected on the basis of their non-irritating qualities as individuals. No chronic complainers, no hypochondriacs, no bugs on cleanliness, particularly no one-man parties. I speak from bitter experience. Because on the first expedition to Mars, Hugh Allenby, damn near drove us nuts with his puns. We finally got, so we just ignored them. But no one can ignore that classic last one. It is written right into the annals of astronomy, and it's there to stay. Allenby, in command of the expedition, was first to set foot outside the ship. As he stepped down from the airlock of the Mars One, he placed that foot on a convenient rock, caught the toe of his weighted boot in a hole in the rock, wrenched his ankle, and smote the ground with his pants. Sitting there, eyes pained behind the transparent shield of his oxygen mask, he stared at the rock. It was about five feet high, ordinary granite, no special shape, and several inches below its summit, running straight through it, in a northeasterly direction was a neat round four-inch hole. I'm upset by the whole thing, he grunted. The rest of us scrambled out of the ship and gathered around his plump form. Only one or two of us winced at his miserable double pun. Break anything, Hugh? asked Burton, our pilot, kneeling beside him. Get out of my way, Burton, said Allenby. You're obstructing my view. Burton blinked. A man constructed of long bones and caution, he angled out of the way, looking around to see what he was obstructing view of. He saw the rock and the round hole through it. He stood very still, staring. So did the rest of us. Well, I'll be damned, said Janice, our photographer. A hole. In a rock, added Gonzales, our botanist. Round, said Randolph, our biologist. An artifact, finished Allenby softly. Burton helped him to his feet. Silently we gathered around the rock. Janice bent down and put an eye to one end of the hole. I bent down and looked through the other end. We squinted at each other. As mineralogist, I was expected to opinionate. Not drilled, I said slowly, not chipped, not melted, certainly not eroded. I heard a rasping sound by my ear and straightened. Burton was scratching a thumbnail along the rim of the hole. Weathered, he said, plenty old, but I'll bet it's a perfect circle if we measure. 
Janice was already fiddling with his camera, testing the cooperation of the tiny distant sun with a light meter. Let us see whether it is or not, Alan B. said. Burton brought out a steel tape measure, and the hole was four and three-eighths inches across. It was perfectly circular and about sixteen inches long and four feet above the ground. But why, said Randolph, why should anyone bore a four-inch tunnel through a rock way out in the middle of the desert? Religious symbols, said Janice. He looked around, one hand on his gun. We'd better keep an eye out. Maybe we've landed on sacred ground or something. A totem hole, perhaps, Allenby suggested. Oh, I don't know, Randolph said to Janice, not Allenby. As I've mentioned, we always ignored Allenby's puns. Note the lack of ornamentation, not at all typical of religious articles. On earth, Gonzales reminded him. Besides, it might be utilitarian, not symbolic. Utilitarian? How? asked Janice. An altar for snakes, Burton said dryly. Well, said Allenby, you can't deny that it has its holy aspects. Get your hand away, will you, Peters? asked Janice. He did. When Janice's camera had clicked, he bent again and peered through the hole. It sights on that low ridge over there, he said. Maybe it's some kind of surveying setup. I'm going to take a look. Careful, warned Janice. Remember, it might be sacred. As I walked along, I heard Allenby said, Take some scrapings from inside of the hole, Gonzales. We might be able to determine if anything is kept in it. One of the stumpy, purplish, barrel-type cacti on the ridge had a long vertical bite out of it, as if someone had carefully carved out a narrow U-shaped section from the top down, finishing the bottom of the U in a neat semicircle. It was as flat and clean-cut as the inside surface of a horseshoe magnet. I hollered. The others came running. I pointed. Oh, my God, said Allenby. Another one. The pulp of the cactus in and around the U-hole was dried and dead-looking. Silently, Burton used his tape measure. The hole measured four and three-eighths inches across. It was eleven inches deep and semicircular bottom was about a foot above the ground. This ridge, he said, is about three feet higher than where we landed the ship. I bet the hole in the rock and the hole in this cactus are on the same level. Gonzales said slowly, This was not done all at once. It's a result of periodic attacks. Look here and here these overlapping depressions along the outer edges of the hole, he pointed. On this side of the cactus, there are the signs of repeated impact and the scalloped effect on this side, where whatever made the hole emerged, there are juices still flowing. 
not at the point of impact where the plant is desiccated, but below, where the shock was transmitted. A distant shout turned us around. Burton was at the rock beside the ship. He was bending down, his eye to the far side of the mysterious hole. We checked our guns. We put on our oxygen masks. We checked our guns again. We got out of the ship and made damn sure the airlock was locked. An hour later, we crawled inch by painstaking inch up a high sand dune and poked our heads over the top. The Martians were runts, the tallest of them less than five feet tall, and skinny as a pencil. Dried up and brown, they wore loincloths of woven fiber. They stood among the dusty-looking, inverted bowl buildings of their village, and every one of them was looking straight up at us with unblinking brown eyes. The six safeties of our six guns clicked off like a rattle of dice. The Martians stood there and gawped. Probably a highly developed sense of hearing in this thin atmosphere, Allenby murmured, heard us coming. They thought that landing of Burton's was an earthquake, Randolph grumbled sourly. Marsquake, corrected Janice. One look at the village's scrawny occupants seemed to have convinced him that his life was no longer in danger. Holding the Martians covered, we examined the village from atop the thirty-foot dune. The dome-like buildings were constructed of something that looked like adobe. No windows, probably built with sandstorms in mind. The doors were about halfway up the sloping sides, and from each door a stone ramp wound down around the houses to the ground, again with sandstorms in mind, no doubt, so drifting dunes wouldn't block the entrances. The center of the village was a wide street and a long sandy area some thirty feet wide on either side of it. The houses were scattered at random, as if each Martian had simply hunted for a comfortable place to sit and then built a house around it. Look, whispered Randolph. One Martian had stepped from a group situated on the far side of the street from us. He started to cross the street, his round brown eyes on us, his small bare feet plodding sand, and we saw that in addition to a loincloth he wore jewelry, a hammered metal ring, a bracelet on one skinny ankle. The sun caught a copperish gleam on his bald, narrow head, and we saw a band of metal there, just above where his eyebrows should have been. The super-chief, Allenby murmured, Oh, shaman me! <laughs> As the bejeweled Martian approached the center of the street, he glanced briefly at the ground at his feet. Then he raised his head, stepped with dignity across the exact center of the street, and came on toward us, passing the dusty-looking buildings of his realm and the dusty-looking groups of his subjects. He reached the slope of the dune, and we lay on it, paused, and raised his small hands over his head, palms toward us. I think, Allenby said, that an anthropologist would give odds on that gesture, meaning peace. 
He stood up, holstered his gun, without buttoning the flap, and raised his own hands over his head. We all did. The Martian language consisted of squeaks. We made friendly noises. The chief squeaked, and pretty soon we were the center of a group of wide-eyed Martians, none of whom made a sound. Eventually, one of them dared peep while the chief spoke. Very likely the most articulate Martians simply squeaked themselves into the job, Allenby, of course, said they just squeaked by. He was going through the business of drawing concentric circles in the sand, pointing at the third orbit away from the sun and thumping his chest. The crowd around us kept growing as more Martian emerged from the dome buildings to see what was going on. Down the winding ramps of the buildings on our side of the wide, sandy street they came, and from the buildings on the other side of the street, plodding through the sand, blinking brown eyes at us, not making a sound. Allenby pointed at the third orbit and thumped his chest. The chief squeaked and thumped his own chest and pointed at the copperish band around his head. Then he pointed at Allenby. I seem to have conveyed to him, Allenby said dryly, the fact that I'm chief of our party. Well, let's try again. He started over on the orbits. He didn't seem to be getting any place, so the rest of us watched the Martians instead. A last handful was straggling across the wide street. Curious, said Gonzales. Note what happens when they reach the center of the street. Each Martian, upon reaching the center of the street, glanced at his feet just for a moment, without even breaking stride, and then came on. What can they be looking at? Gonzales wondered. The chief did it, too, Burton mused. Remember when he first came toward us? We all stared intently at the middle of the street. We saw absolutely nothing but sand. The Martians milled around us and watched Allenby in his orbits. A Martian child appeared from between two buildings across the street. On six-inch legs, it started across, got halfway, glanced downward, and came on. I don't get it, Burton said. What in the hell are they looking at? The child reached the crowd and squeaked a thin, high note. A number of things happened at once. Several of the members of the group around us glanced down, and along the edge of the crowd nearest the center of the street there was a mild stir as individuals drifted off to either side. Quite casually, nothing at all urgent about it. They just moved concertedly to get farther away from the center of the street, not taking their interested gaze off of us for one second in the process. Even the chief glanced up from Allenby's concentric circles at the child's squeak, and Randolph, who had been fidgeting uncomfortably and paying very little attention to our conversation, decided that he must answer nature's call. He moved off into the dunes surrounding the village, or rather, he started to move. The moment he set off across the wide street, the little Martian chief was in front of him, 
brown eyes wide, hands out before him as if to thrust Randolph back. Again, six safeties clicked. The Martians didn't even bleak at the sudden appearance of our guns. Probably the only weapon they recognized was a club, or maybe a rock. What can the matter be? Randolph said. He took another step forward. The chief squeaked and stood his ground. Randolph had to stop or bump into him. Randolph stopped. The chief squeaked, looking right into the bore of Randolph's gun. Hold still, Allenby told Randolph, till we know what's up. Allenby made an interrogative sound at the chief. The chief squeaked and pointed at the ground. We looked. He was pointing at his shadow. Randolph stirred uncomfortably. Hold still, Allenby warned him, and again made the questioning sound. The chief pointed up the street, then he pointed down the street. He bent to touch his shadow, thumping it with thin fingers. Then he pointed at the wall of the house nearby. We all looked. Straight lines had been painted on the curved brick-colored wall, up and down and across, to form many small squares of about four inches across. In each square was a bit of squiggly writing, and blackish paint, with a small wooden peg jutting out from the wall. Burton said, Looks like a damn crossword puzzle. Look, said Janice. In the lower right corner, a metal ring hanging from one of the pegs. And that was all he saw on the wall, hundreds of squares with figures in them, a small peg set in each and a ring hanging on one of the pegs. You know what, Allenby said slowly, I think it's a calendar, just a second Thirty squares wide by twenty-two high. That's six hundred and sixty-six. And that bottom line has twenty-six, twenty-seven squares. Six hundred and eighty-seven squares in all. That's how many days there are in a Martian year. He looked thoughtfully at the middle ring. I'll bet that ring is hanging from the peg in the square that represents today. They must move it along every day to keep track. What's a calendar got to do with my crossing the street? Randolph asked in a pained tone. He started to take another step. The chief squeaked as if it were a matter of desperate concern that he make us understand. Randolph stopped again and swore impatiently. Allenby made his questioning sound again. The chief pointed emphatically at his shadow, then at the communal calendar, and we could see now that he was pointing at the metal ring. Burton said slowly, I think he's trying to tell us that this is today, and such and such a time of day. I bet he's using his shadow as a sundial. Perhaps, Allenby grunted, Randolph said, if this monkey doesn't let me go in another minute, <laughs> the chief squeaked, eyes concerned. Stand still, Allenby ordered. He's trying to warn you of some danger. The chief pointed down the street again, and instead of squealing, 
revealed that there was another sound at his command. He said, Whoosh! We all stared at the end of the street. Nothing. Just the wide avenue between the houses and the high sand dune down at the end of it, from which we had first looked upon the village. The chief described a large circle with one hand sweeping the hand above his head, down to his knees, and up again as fast as he could. He pursed his monkey lips and said, Whoosh! and made the circle again. A Martian emerged from the door in the side of the house across the avenue and blinked at the sun, as if he had just awakened. Then he saw what was going on below and blinked again, this time in interest. He made his way down around the winding lamp and started to cross the street. About halfway he paused, eyed the calendar on the house wall, glanced at his shadow, then he got down on his hands and knees and crawled across the middle of the street. Once past the middle, he rose, walked on the rest of the way to join one of the groups and calmly stared at us, along with the rest of them. They're all crazy, Randolph said disgustedly. I'm going to cross that street. Shut up, so it's a certain time of a certain day. Allenby mused. And from the way the chief is acting, he's afraid for you to cross the street. And that other one just crawled. By God, do you know what this might tie in with? We were silent for a moment. Then Gonzales said, Of course. And Burton said, The holes. Exactly, said Allenby. Maybe whatever made or makes the holes comes right down the center of the street here. Maybe that's why they built the village this way, to make room for... For what? Randolph asked unhappily, shifting his feet. I don't know, Allenby said. He looked thoughtfully at the chief, that circular motion he made. Could he have been describing something that went around and around the planet? Something like... Oh, no, Allenby's eyes glazed. I wouldn't believe it in a million years. His gaze went to the far end of the street, to the high sand dune that rose there. The chief seemed to be waiting for something to happen. I'm going to crawl, Randolph stated. He got to his hands and knees and began to creep across the center of the avenue. The chief let him go. The sand dune at the end of the street suddenly erupted. A forty-foot spout of dust shot straight out of the sloping side, as if a bullet had emerged. Powdered sand hazed the air, yellowed it almost the full length of the avenue. Grains of sand stung the skin and rattled minutely on the houses. Whoosh! Randolph dropped flat on his belly. He didn't have time to continue his trip. He made other arrangements. That night in the ship, while we all sat around still shaking our heads, every once in a while, Allenby talked with Earth. He sat there, wearing his headphones, trying to make himself understood about the god-awful static. An exceedingly small body, 
he repeated wearily to his unbelieving audience. About four inches in diameter, it travels at a mean distance of four feet above the surface of the planet at a velocity yet to be calculated. Its unique nature results in many hitherto unobserved, I might say even unimagined, phenomena. He stared blankly in front of him for a moment, then delivered the understatement of his life. The discovery may necessitate a re-examination of many of our basic postulates in the physical sciences. His headphones squawked. Patiently, Allen B. assured Earth he was entirely serious and reiterated the results of his observations. I suppose that he, an astronomer, was twice as flabbergasted as the rest of us. On the other hand, perhaps he was better equipped to adjust to the evidence. Evidently, he said, when the body was formed it traveled at such fantastic velocity as to enable it to, his voice was almost a whisper, to punch holes in things. The headphones squawked. In rocks, Allenby said, in mountains, in anything that got in its way, and now the holes form a large portion of its fixed orbit. Squawk. Its mass must be on the order of... Squawk. Process of making the holes slow it, so that now it travels just fast enough. Squawk. Maintain its orbit and penetrate occasional objects such as squawk and sand dunes. Squawk. My God, I know it's a mathematical monstrosity, Allenby snarled. I didn't put it there. Squawk. Allenby was silent for a moment. Then he said slowly, A name? Squawk. Hmm, said Allenby. Well, well. He appeared to brighten just a little. So it's up to me as leader of the expedition to name it. Squawk. Well, well, he said. That chop-licking tone was in his voice. We'd heard it all too often before. We shuddered, waiting. Inasmuch as Mars' outermost moon is called Deimos, and the next Phobos, he said, I think I shall name the third moon of Mars Bottommos. End of recording. End of the Holes Around Mars. Recorded by George Thomas, Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, September 2015.